Uh, yeah, I am Neil uh, McMillan from Edinburgh. I'm here because Brian Key is sick, I think. Uh, so uh, he texted me yesterday morning and asked if I would come and take the service this morning. So I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I live in Edinburgh. I've lived there for the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I used to be a minister, uh, is what people tell me. Uh, I left uh, the church I was in in Fife in Kirkcaldy and uh, I'm not a real minister anymore, but I do training uh, of church leaders and coaching and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I love what I do, but uh, I miss uh, pastoral ministry as well. It's very nice to see Caroline, uh, who uh, I remember from uh, Kirkcaldy, where she grew up, and uh, she's a Langton lassie, uh, and uh, so I feel a great bond with her, and uh, Caroline's dad, uh, Brock White, some of you might know Brock, was extremely kind to me when I started off as a young minister uh, nearly 20 years ago. That's enough about me. Uh, let's uh, go to God's Word. Uh, we're going to read in John 4. So the Gospel of John and chapter 4. I think it's probably page 1066 if you've got one of the the church's Bibles. So John chapter 4 from the beginning. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus declared, Believe me, women, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Amen. I'm looking around for a clock so I can keep an eye on the time, but there isn't one visible. Uh, Here's a story then about an encounter between uh, Jesus, uh, a Jewish man, and uh, a woman uh, whose name we don't have, but who was uh, ethnically Sumerian, and uh, because of their religious and uh, ethnic differences, this uh, promised to be quite a kind of tense and difficult uh, encounter. And... uh, the first thing that we're going to sort of have a look at in the chapter is uh, the, the difference in uh, how we approach people, whether we approach them with uh, an embrace or whether we approach them, approach them in a way that excludes them. So, in other words, do we treat people and give people a sense of belonging? Uh, I grew up in a city uh, divided by religion. Uh, Glasgow, uh, where I spent most of my childhood, uh, was a city where you went to a school uh, that was either Protestant or Catholic, and so you tended to have your identity uh, formed in that way. You saw yourself as a proddy, or you saw yourself as a Catholic, and, and that identity then uh, shaped the way you looked at the world and the people around you, and especially people who were different from you. And when I was a little boy, I used to go to Ibrox, where rangers play, and uh, sing lots of uh, discriminatory chants and songs that I would get arrested for now if I sang them. When uh, I was at school, uh, at break time, we would head down to the local Catholic school and chuck bricks over the wall, not because we had any antipathy towards the people in person, but because they were Catholics. So that, that was a kind of environment that was really familiar to me growing up. We live in a world that's full of discrimination, uh, bigotry, and hatred, and often that has religious overtones. And uh, people find their identity sometimes in their religion, and in their religious groups, and that gives them a sense of personal or group superiority. It gives them their sense of worth and belonging. And here we find Jesus approaching uh, a woman who's very, very different from him ethnically and in terms of her religion. So different that she's quite surprised. In verse 9, when Jesus uh, has asked her for a drink, the woman says, You're a Jew. 
I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So this woman's expectation is that she's going to encounter hostility from Jesus, discrimination, rejection, even hatred. Her gender, her race, her religion, her lifestyle, all of those things mean that she would expect somebody like Jesus, a Jewish male, to treat her with contempt. And yet, when we see how Jesus approaches this woman, he doesn't exclude her, he doesn't discriminate against her, rather he embraces her. Not physically, but emotionally. He just reaches out to her in a a very open, warm, respectful, humble way and tries to connect with this woman. And uh, that's a really important lesson for us to learn because often within the church, the way we form our identity is uh, as a religious group, a, a group of people who share the same uh, rituals, who come together at certain times of the week and go through uh, the the, the rituals, the patterns of church life. And so we relate to people on that basis. And what I want to encourage you to do instead of that is to relate to people, as Jesus does, through grace and through the gospel. Often when we we see people, we often... uh, we recognize, first of all, what's different about them. And, and we emphasize our differences. And uh, what Jesus does, of course, is he tries to find a point of commonality with this woman. A place where they can uh, be on the same level, in the same place, uh, needing the same things. This is really important for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is that when new people come into church, uh, how we respond to them uh, really matters. And uh, going to church for the first time or going to a new church uh, is like trying on new clothes. Now, I don't spend a lot of time clothes shopping. Uh, I, I, I abhor shopping for clothes. It's just the most unnatural Uh, unpleasant experience uh, of uh, the decade. It only happens once every 10 years and uh, lasts about 10 minutes and I feel really uncomfortable. But when you put on new clothes, you're kind of thinking, what do I look like in this? You know, do I look like an idiot? Do I look stupid? Do I look fat? Do I look thin? How do I look? And uh, when people come to church for the first time, it's like trying on new clothes. They're thinking, if I was part of this community... What would that be like? What would I look like? What would I feel like? Would I feel at home here? Would I want to be like these people? Would I want to share the life of this community? And uh, if people come into the church and they, they, they see a group of people who are unfriendly or intolerant or who are suspicious or who are very inward looking and aren't ready to embrace the outsider, then They'll, they'll generally think, now nah, Christians, Christians are kind of what I expected. You know, this sort of inward-looking, 
cosy little religious club, and I don't want to be part of that. And so when people come into church, they need to find warmth, they need to find openness, they need to find people who are ready to embrace them. They need to find love, compassion, acceptance, and no matter who they are, of course. Uh, Often I find in churches that people are very warm to strangers who come in, as long as those strangers look like them, talk like them, and act like them. But if strangers come in who are quite different socially or culturally, then it's, it's much more difficult for them to feel the same welcome. And what we have to emphasize here, of course, is that the welcome Jesus gives to us it is a wonderful, warm, open embrace. Jesus embraces every kind of person, no matter who they are. So no matter who you are, and I'm a visitor here, you might be a visitor here, I'm not entirely sure who's who, but no matter who you are, then Jesus is here with a great welcome, a loving welcome, and a compassionate welcome. And he has a great interest in you, no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you're like. So Jesus helps us to feel like we belong. And in the church, we want to communicate that same feeling to people who are from outside our community, that they belong. And we can only do that if our hearts are inhabited by the grace and the compassion of the gospel. So that's the first thing I I want to touch on here in the passage is how we approach new people or strangers. Do we give them a sense of warmth, love, and belonging? The second issue that comes up in the passage for us is not just the issue of belonging, but the issue of freedom, So Jesus uh, is here, uh, and he is experiencing uh, what what we might describe as frustration. He's experiencing the frustration of physical thirst and need. It's the hottest part of the day. We're told it's the sixth hour in verse 6. So if you uh, had a watch uh, back then made in Jerusalem, uh, the sixth hour is our midday. Uh, So it's the hottest part of the day. He's out in the open, so the heat is burning. And uh, because Jesus, though he is the Son of God, shares our human nature, he feels that burning heat. He he feels the the way it drains you. He feels the way you, you, you get fatigued. The sun burns him. He's sweating. He's tired. Uh, He's thirsty. And he thinks, I would love a drink of water. And when we see Jesus expressing his need uh, for water, when he's talking about his physical thirst to this woman, then two things emerge. One is this, of course, that we're being reminded that uh, his humanity is real. He is God, John makes that so clear at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, uh, the Word 
was with God and the Word was God. So Jesus is God, but Jesus is fully human. He walks in our shoes. He experiences our thirst. He experiences our needs. He knows how life feels. He missed people. He felt lonely. He hungered for love and acceptance. He looked for friends. He longed for comfort. He searched for community. He experienced sorrow. Jesus knows what our lives are like from the inside out. And in John's Gospel, of course, thirst and water are always used by John with a kind of symbolic edge as well. And uh, he, when, when, uh, when he uses uh, imagery of water or thirst in, in this Gospel, John is pointing to our deeper experiences of need, not just physical, but emotional and most definitely spiritual needs. And so Jesus' conversation with this woman isn't just about getting a drink from the well here in Sychar, Jacob's well. It's a conversation that's about something far more profound. It's about her spiritual needs. I was going to say existential needs, but I don't want to sound pretentious. Uh, But it's about the deepest needs and longings of her heart and her life and her desires. Her her longing for fulfillment, for acceptance, for meaning, and for purpose. Jesus understands exactly what that's like. And Jesus sees that this woman is looking for answers in the wrong places. Because she's trying to find her self-worth and she's trying to anchor her identity and her purpose in one relationship after another. And none of these relationships seem to work out. We don't know why. We're not told. But she goes through this succession of husbands until now she's with her sixth life partner who isn't actually her husband. It's just someone that she is with. And so Jesus sees this woman as somebody who is pursuing fulfillment in a succession of relationships that fail to last and fail to satisfy and fail to give her the comfort and the peace that she is longing for. She's pursuing wholeness and happiness, but Jesus understands, like so many of us, that she's pursuing it in the wrong places. The Bible talks about certain kinds of desires that we have in life. Um, that overwhelm us. And uh, that's literally the word that the Apostle Paul uses for them. Uh, Overwhelming or inordinate desires. Desires that take possession of our hearts and our souls. Sometimes these desires are for something uh, legitimate in themselves. Uh, Money or uh, some kind of relationship or Sometimes these desires are for approval or popularity or for alcohol or for drugs or for power or pornography. But you see, one desire comes to dominate, shape, and uh, mark who we are as a human being. 
And that's how this woman's life is. It's ruled by one overwhelming desire for that magic relationship that will give her all the happiness and joy and fulfillment that she longs for. But what, the, what Jesus shows us, what the New Testament shows us is that when we let one kind of desire like that overwhelm us and rule our hearts and drive us, then instead of fulfilling us and freeing us, that desire begins to dominate and enslave us. Because if we think that one, if I could only have the money, the job, the person, whatever it is, if we, if we think that's what will make me happy and we set all our hopes upon it, then when we get it, we find it's never enough. So we think, I'm still not happy, I'm still not fulfilled, I need more of this, I need more money, I need more promotion, I need more popularity, I need more approval, I need more sex, I need you know, more relationships, whatever it is. And so the thing that we began thinking of us as the thing that would make us free and happy becomes our tyrant, ruling our lives, driving us, making us obsessive and yet unhappy. And Jesus understands what it is to have an idol in your life that begins to rule over your life and you become unfree at every, every level. And so that's what this woman is experiencing. She's made an idol out of these uh, romantic, physical, sexual relationships and of course they can't fulfill her greatest, deepest need as a human being. And he's saying to her, you're looking in the wrong place. You're not going to find your freedom here. And so he points her in another direction to living water that well up to eternal life. Something that really does free our souls, liberate them and satisfy them. So that may be you. Even if you're a Christian, this may be a good description of your soul. A soul that is enslaved to a particular overwhelming desire that dominates your thoughts and your motives and drives your behavior. Because you think, if I have this, this is what will make me happy. And Jesus is saying to you, no. You've got to seek your freedom, your joy, and your happiness, not in that thing or in that relationship, but in me. So I'm going to move on from talking about belonging, freedom we've spoken about, but to transformation. Because that's what Jesus says this woman really needs. She needs to have a, a, an experience that will transform who she is as a person. Uh, in the Bible, we find that often there are two ways we can try to avoid God. One is by being good. One is by being bad. Uh, and good people hide from God behind their religion and their respectability, and bad people uh, hide from God 
by just ignoring him, uh, sticking their fingers up at him, and running from him as hard as they can, and pretending that he has nothing to do with their lives in any way. Uh, This is a picture of my home growing up uh, in one sense. Uh, I had an older brother who whose relationship with my father was kind of stormy. He was the family rebel. Uh, If my dad said to him, don't smoke, he would pull out a packet of 20 and spark one up straight away and start blowing smoke rings. If my dad said, you know, you're not allowed to get your ear pierced, he'd come back with both ears pierced and on and on it went. This was a conflict-based relationship of rebellion. I was just as disobedient to my father as my older brother, but I was the sneaky, horrible little child uh, who pretended uh, to do everything my dad wanted and then went off and did exactly what I felt like. Uh, It was far smarter. I didn't have all the aggro and all the hassle that my older brother had. And that's the way we relate to God. Some of us are just hardened rebels who want to defy God, and others of us are just sneaky little sinners who go, who say the right things, make the right noises, do the right things. But in our hearts, we're just as disobedient and rebellious, and we're pursuing our own idols. Uh, And I I think in in, uh, John's Gospel, we've got a really great representation of this, because we've got this woman whose life is very obviously kind of uh, rebellious and provocative towards God. You know, the series of relationships and broken relationships that she's been through. And uh, if you contrast this woman with the guy that we find in the previous chapter, Nicodemus, well, you get a really amazing contrast because in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, if you turn there in your Bible, just the previous page, We read, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So you can get a greater contrast between Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Nicodemus is very religious. He's a Pharisee. That meant that he followed a very strict Jewish religious sect who placed a great deal of emphasis on religious ritual and acts of purification and devotion towards God. So meticulous in his religion. He's also male, which mattered a lot in that culture, and he is powerful. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is somebody who walked the streets of Jerusalem and people knew who he was and gave him respect. This is a man who had a, a really powerful influence on the life of the city and the decisions that were made. So you've got a male who is deeply religious and who is very powerful on one hand. And then you've got this woman, we don't know her name. She's probably socially on the margins because of her lifestyle. And she's powerless. And yet Jesus has exactly the same thing to say to these two people. To one, Nicodemus, he says, you need to be transformed spiritually, you need to be born again. To the other one, to the woman, he says, you need to be transformed spiritually, you need the waters of living, the living waters welling up 
to eternal life. Two very different people on the outside, but of course, absolutely identical on the inside. Both lost, both guilty before God. Both unable to transform or change themselves. Both in need of the power of God to save them, transform them, redeem them, set them free and bring them into a new relationship with the Father in heaven. In between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, what do we find? Well, we find that very well-known verse for Christians, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's only one way to the Father, through Jesus, through the cross, through the transformation that he brings about inside us, through the gospel, through his death and resurrection. You are exactly the same in the sense that be you religious or rebellious, be you respectable or whatever, you need the same transforming power of God to be at work in your life. You need Christ to change your heart, to give you a new beginning. It can't be earned and it can't be bought. It is a gift of love. God gave his one and only son so that by believing in him you will not perish but have eternal life. It's the only way you can be changed, set free and saved. Through the cross, through a personal trust and belief in the work of Jesus. So, a couple of other little things I'm going to say just to finish off. Uh, we come on to the topic of worship in this chapter. And uh, that's where the woman moves the conversation uh, from Jesus is speaking to her about the need for transformation, the, the living waters. Um, he talks to her about her relationships and her husbands, and she then goes on to talk about, I can see you're a prophet, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, you Jews have a different form of worship, that's verse 19 and 20. And Jesus wants to say to this woman, listen, a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. So, Jesus wants to talk to her also about the nature of worship. Why? Because worship is absolutely key to who we are as human beings. And what Jesus says to her, of course, is this, that it's not where we worship or how we worship that matters. You know, it's not the ritual or the location. But it's the person we worship. And we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. So the focus is not outward on ritual, but inward on the heart. And the worship that God wants is to be spiritual, spirit-driven, generated by the power of the Spirit, a work within us, and it's to be shaped by the truth of the gospel. 
And, uh, you know, lots of us have have an ambivalent attitude to worship because we don't like the aesthetics of the worship sometimes or because we feel we, we ain't getting anything from the worship. It feels dead. It feels boring. That's so many people's experience of worship. Boredom. Disconnection. And, and, and the issue, you know, the good aesthetics help, but the real issue, of course, is the heart issue. And the issue is, is the gospel operating in your heart? Because what the gospel produces in our hearts is an overwhelming desire and love for Jesus. We've, we've looked at this woman and, and the overwhelming desire that shaped her life. And what the gospel does is it replaces those kinds of desires with a new overwhelming desire for Jesus. To know him, to see him, to be in his presence, to adore him, to exalt him, to glorify him. To enjoy him. And that overwhelming desire of Jesus. Or for Jesus. Is what is produced. When the spirit and the truth. Are working together. Within us. They bring gospel realities to bear. They remind us. That we are sinners with pride, with selfishness, with greed, with lust, with bitterness, with anger, with envy, with self-righteousness, always frothing away in our lives and reminding us that we need to repent and renew our trust in Jesus Christ every day. So, Every day we're coming to Jesus saying, I am a lost, helpless, desperate, proud, selfish sinner. My only hope today is not in anything I do, but in the finished, perfect work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And we need to let those gospel truths continually be working in us. Because as those gospel truths work in us, they see that our only hope is Jesus Christ. And they help us to see the beauty of the work of Jesus, that he shows such mercy to people who are so completely undeserving. And the mercy of Jesus in the face of our selfish, sinful rebellion is what melts our hearts and breaks our pride and humbles us and causes us to call out in the gospel. So if the gospel's not working in your life, worship will always be an effort. It will always be a chore. You might enjoy the music, you might not. But if the gospel is worship, is working, then worship becomes reality. True worship is a renewed nature seeking more of God. True worship is a renewed nature seeking more of God and giving God adoration, praise, and thanksgiving.
It is delighting in God and in everything that he has done for us. Those are the kind of worshippers that God the Father seeks. And so is that the kind of worship that we offer to God the Father? Not ritual, not habit, not simply an aesthetic, external uh, experience, but a heartfelt worship of a soul renewed by the gospel and so transfixed with love for the Savior. At the end of this encounter, Jesus uh, declares to this woman, I am the Christ, the Messiah. Um, That's the great thing that she has to come to terms with, to realize and to confront. And uh, I just want to leave you there as well. That's the challenge is that the one who speaks with this woman and the one who speaks with you today through his word is God's eternal, living, exalted, reigning son, Jesus Christ. And he is calling you into his embrace, calling you to the freedom of the gospel, calling you to experience the transforming power of the cross, and calling you to enter in to a new way of worshipping where you are meeting with the living God through the power of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say a short prayer, and then I think Brian's going to come up, and there are one or two other things that are going to happen. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that your word will live and speak to us, that it will uh, come home to us in a personal and uh, in a helpful way. We pray that your word would search out our hearts, humble us and cause us to worship Christ. We pray for anybody who is not a Christian here today, that they will see beyond the words eh, to see the reality of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.